Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. COVID-19 has officially been declared a pandemic. Between that and the first case in our city, how do we contain it? And on that topic, the NBA has decided to suspend its season until further notice over concerns about an outbreak. The decision was announced after a player from the Utah Jazz actually tested positive. And a government survey shows that most drivers in Ontario support raising the speed limits on Ontario highways. We'll give you all the details on that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We have tried and will continue to uh, try to uh, get you information and facts uh, about what's happening, of course, uh, with uh, the virus, with the COVID-19 virus, as opposed to some of the craziness that we've seen on social media and some of the idiotic rumors that people seem to be spreading. Uh, but this was actually a Chinese military operation, and I mean, come on, really? Let's let's deal with what we have to deal with, with which uh, which is what in front of us here right now. Yesterday, the World Health Organization announced that uh, COVID nineteen is now officially a pandemic. So now what? What does that designation mean? Uh, and what are the implications and what are our, the, our next steps going forward? Joining us to talk about that is uh, Dr. Anna Benerji, who is, uh, of course, an MD, um, MPH, and, of course, a conference chair with the Indigenous and Refugee Health Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, also an associate professor of pediatrics in Dalai Lama School of Public Health. Uh, and uh, first of all, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. Can we start maybe with a definition? Uh, from epidemic to pandemic, what, what, what does that difference mean and what, what does it entail? Um, epidemics are uh, isolated to certain locations. A pandemic is basically global, um, a global um, outbreaks of an infectious disease. Usually it's a new emerging infectious disease. So the fact that this is global now, and it's not just, of course, in Asian countries, it's in Europe, it's in North America now, we're starting to identify cases more and more. Uh, does, does this mean that, the, that it is just tracking more, or does that mean that it's, it's more serious than it was, say, a week ago? It's spreading. It's oh, spreading, okay. um, and some parts of the world it's more uh, contained than other parts of the world, but it is uh, diffusing, really, across the globe. Let me ask you about that. There's a word that that came up an awful lot yesterday as, as the World Health Organization and others were talking about this is containment. Uh, yep. And the and the catchphrase was to, to flatten the curve. And I guess that's referring, of course, to all the charts we've seen of the upward trajectory of the number of identified cases. How how do we as as a as a, a society really because it's not just a national problem as you mentioned. How do you do that? How do you try to curtail and contain what's going on? Um, so one of it is surveillance, trying to find out. Um, how much is really out there. For example, in Canada, most of the cases um, are basically related to travel or uh, in contact with someone who's traveled. So right now, we don't have widespread um, community spread of the virus. And so um, so that allows us to track when people are at risk, to test them, and quarantine. And so far, uh, that seems to have worked. Now, that what, whether that will work long-term, we don't know. Um, Probably eventually the virus will start um, spreading more, and it, it won't be linked to um, to travel. It'll be much more community spread. And when that happens, then it's really hard to know who's really uh, at risk or who's been exposed to the virus. Um, and at that time, the main thing is trying to protect the most vulnerable. Do we even have a good read, Doctor, on, on how far this and how extensive this has actually gone? Because uh, we're told, uh, it, especially in the States, I suppose, but I, I guess to a certain extent here too, 
uh, that uh, a lot of people that may identify and may actually show symptoms don't get tested or they don't have the, the wherewithal to get tested. I guess down in the States, uh, from, you don't have insurance, you have to pay for it, and a lot of people are simply not going to shell out like that. So is, is there a, a large number of unreported cases that might actually uh, rejig some of the numbers that we have been talking about? I'm sure there is, uh, especially in the States, where if you you may not have insurance, you may not be able to get tested, and then when uh, and if there may be an incentive not to know if you have mild illness, you might think, okay, well, it's just a cold, and I work at minimum wage, and if I don't go into my work, then I'm I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. And so I think there is, and, and some people with mild kind of symptoms, they they might say, well, I'm not really at risk. You know, this it's just a cold. So I think that we only see uh, the people that are more severe or the people that are more anxious that are going in to get te- tested. For example, in China, you know, they have um, tens of thousands of cases, but there are probably people in the villages, you know, an elderly man dies of pneumonia. That's, that's normal. That happens all the time. But we're not, we're not testing them for coronavirus. So we're, I think we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. In Canada, I think we're seeing... Um, a lot of the actual cases that are getting sick, and there hasn't been widespread um, transmission. But again, that could change. But I think in Canada, we're much more prepared than in many other parts of the world, partially because of SARS. SARS um, really led to the creation of the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, All the hospitals and health authorities have been planning for pandemic. They thought influenza, but pandemic uh, serious viral infection. So most places have policies in place. We have strong leadership from the public health agency and from um, provincial and local health authorities. And uh, you know they they're they're getting things set up. So I think we're ahead of much of the world. Talk to us about the comparator because we've heard that before, and I know you have uh, a lot of experience with the SARS situation, and and I guess that was an example of trying uh, to attain that containment that you talked just about a little while ago uh, around the Toronto area, and specifically with uh, one particular hospital, as we recall. Uh, But uh, a scary moment, a scary moment worldwide for us, and and especially here in southern Ontario. Uh, Are there similarities between what we see developing here now with what happened with SARS? Uh, there, there are similarities. I mean, it's a new coronavirus uh, came uh, out of China. It's it's spreading. It's causing a lot of uh, fear. Uh, like I, I think Toronto was a ghost town, or, or Chinatown in Toronto was a ghost town. A lot of things shut down during SARS. There was a lot of panic. So I think a lot of similarities are there. But this virus is more infectious than the SARS virus. Uh, I came to Toronto to help with SARS because I had a public health degree. Uh, as well as uh, I'm an infectious disease specialist. And actually, when I came, SARS was actually over, but we didn't know it. We were planning for a third wave, fourth wave of pandemic. And because of the containment efforts, but also the, the nature of the virus, SARS um, fizzled out. Um, but this virus is, is more infectious. And for a virus to keep spreading, it has to be able to infect a certain number of people to be able to be uh to continue and SARS didn't have what it had to to it didn't have what you need to continue uh, as far as an epidemic so it, it died down but this coronavirus is is infecting a lot of people and the concern about this virus is that uh, some people can spread it without symptoms they may may have been exposed and so that that way it's really hard to contain if you don't know right now 
we're containing people based on risk and travel uh, and ex- exposure to someone who's at risk. But when we lose that epidemiological link and it's it's being transmitted um, in the community, then it's really then it becomes much more harder to contain as well. If people have been exposed and they have no symptoms and they're spreading it, again, that makes it more difficult. So that's that's the big difference between this coronavirus and SARS. There are a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about, too, and maybe you could address some, and I'm going to use the word myths, uh, that are out there and and being perpetrated by an awful lot of people who really don't have any expertise in this, but nonetheless it's out there, and I guess people believe what they want to believe. Uh, one of them, of course, is the comparator that, look, come on, a lot more people die from flu than they do from, from, from COVID. So what's the big deal? I mean, you know, why, why get upset about this? How, how would you answer that? Um, we haven't seen the full... Um uh, you know, they, we haven't seen it level off, so we don't really know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen in the summer, if it's going to die down or if it's going to resurge in September. But it seems to be more lethal than uh, the influenza. Influenza kills, uh, you know, thousands, well, numerous people uh, every year, mainly people who are elderly or people who are compromised. Um, but this uh, coronavirus, depending on what part of the world you're looking at, has a higher um, uh, lethality rate, higher death rate. And so in that way, it's, it's concerning. I mean, influenza is an issue and we're, we're sort of used to it. And some people get flu shots, some people don't. And, but it, we're, it's sort of baseline. We don't know what the baseline is going to be uh, when it reaches its, um, when it levels off. And we don't know how many people uh, are going to die as a result of it. Um, so there's a lot of unknowns. Well, and again, I'm trying to just, uh, from the, some of the information we're getting from the World Health Organization, trying to uh, get some conclusions about this, too. And I know it's always dangerous going down the road of statistics because, uh, you know, you can take things in isolation, but you have to look at a broader picture. But uh, what we heard yesterday from the World Health Organization spokesman who was addressing, in, in Washington anyway, was I, I believe the mortality rate for influenza, although, yeah, the, the number is a lot higher, but it's 0.5%, I believe it was, of the people that contract uh, influenza, which is about 2 or 3%. Uh, for the people that are going to be dealing with COVID-19. So it sounds like it's much more deadly. And uh, at least one doctor said it's 10 times more deadly than the flu, and people don't seem to understand that. Yes, it it depends on what part of the world you're looking at. For for example, in Italy, it seems to have a fairly high death rate. uh, Of I think there were, um, last I heard, there were 600 deaths, or over 600 deaths. And, you know, this is not um, an unhealthy population. You might expect... There to be higher a higher death rate in populations that are compromised. Um, for example, you know where where there's higher levels of malnutrition. Maybe not everyone's vaccinated against other infections. But but Italy, you know, it's it's a healthy population um, and generally vaccinated. So that's that's pretty frightening when when they they have a significant death rate. But again, we're seeing the sickest cases. There could be cases that are out there that we're not measuring. So the death rate may not be so high, but it, it's, it seems uh, from one of the numbers we have, it's much higher than influenza. Well, and if it's not identified, I guess, it, it can skew the statistics. You, I mean, you just mentioned about an elderly man in, in a village in China who passes away from quote-unquote pneumonia, uh, but pneumonia can be actually one of the, 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 the problems with, uh, with this virus, isn't it? COVID-19 right. in, in extreme cases can lead to pneumonia. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be that extreme. I mean, influenza, a lot of these respiratory infections, if it, if an elderly or compromised person gets the, like, for example, even influenza, they can get pneumonia and die from it. And that's most of the causes of death are because of complications of influenza like pneumonia. Um, so that, that is a, a big concern, but it can, it can cause all, uh, this coronavirus can cause all kinds of other symptoms. Um, um, leading to, you know, respiratory failure or cardiac failure in people who are compromised. Um, and, and, and for some people who, who are otherwise healthy, like the, the physicians that died in China. Um, so, so, it is a it is a concern in that way. Well, and that's a, a, I think a very chilling statistic as well because I think a lot of people when they see this and say, "Oh, I'm not frail or elderly, so I'm not really going to get this, and it's not going to have an impact." Uh, that means they're more prone to it. But younger people can die from this as well. Uh, yeah, I think the rates in children are much lower than, uh, for example, um, other other viruses. So for whatever reason, it, it's tending to occur in the older population. But we don't really know why, and maybe it's just um, as this virus progresses, we're going to see more more deaths in children, probably uh, very very young children or vulnerable children. Um, influenza kills children as well. It can it, it can ki- it can kill healthy children as well. It, you know, if someone has overwhelming influenza, um, but people don't realize that. So this coronavirus has the potential to to um, to be lethal, especially in certain populations, as the elderly and vulnerable. Doctor, you mentioned Italy a couple of minutes ago. Uh, they are in shutdown mode. Ireland is in shutdown mode. Schools are closed. Uh, theaters are closed. Sports arenas are closed. Uh, there is absolutely no opportunity for people to gather en masse. Uh, is that an effective way to, to, to do this self-quarantine, uh, you know, to isolationist? To, to, you know, because we go back to that initial thing about trying to flatten the, the curve and, and try to curtail the growth of this and the spread of this right now. Does that, does that way work? Um, it may reduce the spread, um, so it depends on where they are along that epidemiological curve. And if it's out there and it's being spread widely already, then then shutting down things may not contain it. But if it's still in the early phases where um, you know only a few people have it, and uh, and the people are getting it, are there close close contacts? Uh, then you know the the horse may be out of the barn. And I'm not sure where each country is for that. But, I mean, I think um, you understand the the rationale that goes into something like that, trying to contain it, especially trying to contain uh, worldwide spread, where, where you don't want this to be uh, seeded in other parts of the world. But what's the absolute correct uh, response or the correct way of responding? No one can really know. We don't have a crystal ball that takes us along two paths and says this is the best thing to do or that is the best thing to do. I think that if people are looking at the evidence and following uh, evidence and uh, and scientists and the experts in the field, then then there could be um, different ways of handling it. I don't think in Canada that's something we need to do right now because still at this point in time, it's being spread um there's usually an epidemiological link. So at this point in time, we may not, uh, you know, the public health people may not be considering it. But if it's starting to become more widespread, um, then that is something they may consider. As well, 
with a warmer season coming, spring coming, usually with these viral infections, they tend to decrease in the spring. So will it be better in, in the summer? Will we, will we be able to contain it enough that it's not widespread in Canada to buy us time to get us to the spring uh, if it goes down and then hopefully uh, get people vaccinated. I think ultimately um, this is something that, that we'll be able to hopefully control with a vaccine. Were we prepared for this? I, I, and I want you, again, to relate to your SARS experience, because that just kind of jumped out at us. And, and you, you mentioned that, you know, there was a lot of work done in, in anticipation of, look, at this is going to happen again at some point. But we've heard stories about not enough test kits and, and not enough materials, even if it's just uh, surgical masks and things of this nature. Uh, so I, I, we're kind of playing catch-up, aren't we? We're ramping up. I mean, it takes some time to get... You know, it's not like everyone has in every hospital, every clinic, stockpiles of uh, masks uh, already there for uh, influenza takes, you know, a little bit of time to get that in place. But I think we're probably as prepared as it gets as far as countries because we went through SARS and we, many uh, places, had uh, pandemic influenza planning. I know in the hospitals that I work at, um, they all have had pandemic influenza planning, contingency plans, and it takes a little bit of time, but they're ramping up. They've, they're creating um, uh, coronavirus testing units so that anyone who's at risk for coronavirus um, uh, can, um, can go to these units where people are prepared, where they have the proper gown, mask, glove. So, so by cohorting these people who may be at risk for coronavirus or who have anxiety about coronavirus, you know that they're being tested properly in a safe way. And so we're <clears throat> way ahead as far as, for example, the States and many other parts of the world. So I think all those are lessons learned from SARS. Well, I take great solace in the fact that on this side of the border anyway, it seems as if our political leaders are listening to the medical experts and not uh, just uh, trying to make stuff up as they go along. And that seems to have put us on a much faster track, I guess, to, to move this along. Doctor, it was so great to have you on the program today and to, to lend your expertise to this, especially given the incredible experience that you've had dealing with infectious diseases. Uh, we really appreciate that. We'd like to lean on you again. This isn't going away anytime soon. And uh, again, you know, the more information I think that the public gets, uh, the better off we're all going to be and the better prepared we're going to be. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure to have you again, Doctor. Dr. Anna Bajeri, of course, uh, from uh, University of Toronto, uh, who was heavily involved, of course, in, in the, uh, the SARS dealings in Toronto some years ago. So she knows what of she speaks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Professional sports here in North America, especially over the last little while. We already know, of course, the World Women's Hockey Championships uh, were canceled just a little while ago because of the concern about the COVID-19. Uh, other things have been canceled as well. And uh, the NBA at one point was talking about finishing off their season uh, without allowing people in to watch the games. They were just going to, the their players were going to play, but it was going to be in empty arenas. Well, that's changed, of course, when uh, one player. Uh, tested positive for COVID-19, and uh, as a result, the NBA has now suspended uh, the season. It's not canceled yet, but it is suspended. Uh, and uh, well, there's mixed reaction to what was going on. Here's a Detroit Pistons coach, Dwayne Casey. It's always been where you could lean on sports to kind of ease your nerves or ease the situation. Uh, but now we're in, you know, we're just like everyone else. We're involved. We're looking out for each other, looking out for fellow team members, our families. So uh, I think that this is unprecedented territories for uh, the whole sports world. 
Certainly is. I want to bring Sean Fitzgerald into the conversation, managing editor, of course, and feature writer with The Atlantic, as uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Sean. How are you doing today? Good morning. Are you surprised by the NBA decision? No, uh, I think it's a responsible thing to do. Uh, there's precedent that's been set in Europe already. Uh, world health and Canadian health experts have been talking about things like social distancing. So, you know, social distancing does not involve getting into an enclosed environment with 20,000 other people and sharing handles to squeeze out things like ketchup on your hot dogs. That's, that's a bad practice and a bad idea during a global health pandemic. The, I'm wondering what else is going to do. The other shoe is going to fall. I know that uh, the NHL office and Gary Bettman talked about this and said they're in consultation with officials. Uh, I'm sure you saw this tweet that I got just a couple of minutes ago here from the NHL office that said uh, they have sent a directive out to all the teams right now that there should be no morning skates, no practices, uh, no practicing, and no meetings at all today. Does that suggest to you that there's an announcement from the NHL that's going to be imminent? Yeah, they're going to have to make an announcement. It's not just them. I mean, baseball's coming too, but... Um, I mean, you take a look at the NHL. Um, yeah, I, I think I would be shocked if you didn't see at least a postponement. Uh, the Leafs, for example, have a home game tonight against Nashville. I would be very surprised if that game went ahead as scheduled. There's just there's just too much at stake. There's just too many unknowns. Um, you know, community transmission. All of these things are, are huge factors. And 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 again, you know, sitting with twenty thousand people in an arena, um, you know, it runs the risk of, of, you know, that transmission. There was the mining conference in Toronto uh, last week with, you know, 25,000 people. And, and now you're, you know, seeing that, you know, a man in Sudbury was believed to have contracted uh, COVID-19 at that conference. So hosting a sports event, while everybody enjoys it, um, it certainly is, and, and God knows we need the distraction now. It's it's just not, I don't think, the prudent thing to do. Well, the other element to this, too, is, is again, you're trying to you know marry these two things that we're hearing all the time. And, of course, this is the, the sports response to this. Uh, and, of course, we're hearing from people like uh, Health Canada and the World Health Organization. Uh, and the message we got when they ramped this up and, and started calling it a pandemic as opposed to just an epidemic, uh, they, they did say, and I guess this is positive news to a certain extent, we still have a chance to control this. Uh, before this just becomes like wildfire. But we've got to be vigilant. We've got to follow the instructions. Well, one of those is stop you know, associating with big crowds. Stop that close. Now, we're not getting to the point where now we're closing theaters like they are in some places in Europe right now. And But I think it's the only prudent thing to do right now is to say, look, we don't need 20,000 people in one building because God knows who's got there. And, you know, for all we know, there could be 500 people already that are carriers of this thing. Well, I mean, in Ireland this morning, um, the Prime Minister announced that, that schools and daycares were closed. Uh, we, know what, we know what's going on in Italy. The whole country is in lockdown. But, you know, you're starting to see across Europe more and more measures that, you know, as of today at you know, whatever time it is, 1030 in the morning, it might sound drastic, but, you know, the Atlantic isn't as big as it used to be. That, um, you know, you're a short flight away that I don't think that, you know, Canadians, Ontarians should think of ourselves as exceptional in any way and that, you know, not just the Leafs and the Raptors and the Blue Jays, um, you know, are, are at risk of, of closing things down. That you know, the, the notion of public schools, movie theaters, that sort of thing, um, that that could very well be next. And knowing, by the way, that I'm speaking to a Hamilton radio station, I'll just jump ahead of listeners who are thinking that um, maybe the safest place to ride out a pandemic would be at a Toronto Argonauts game, given their... <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that message, uh, uh, it, Riley Smith plays for the, uh, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, of course. 
And uh, I guess one of the reporters asked him the other day, he said, what do you think about this idea of playing in front of empty arenas? And his response, he says, they played in Florida for two years. I'm used to it. So, <laughs> so, uh, a little levity, now, I guess. Thing, in, the in, thing is there, too, that that seemed like a very, you know, a, you know, all the way back to three days ago, playing in front of empty stadiums seemed like a very reasonable idea. But but now you see what happened last night with, you know, the Utah Jazz and Rudy Gobert and, and, and an athlete testing positive for COVID-19. And you see that Cristiano Ronaldo is, is under self-quarantine after coming into contact with a teammate who is uh, a fellow player who has tested positive for COVID-19. That You know, while these players aren't in the demographic that allegedly is, is you know, I don't want to say more or less safe, but, but you know, statistically uh, less likely to feel severe symptoms of this, um, that they are still at risk and that, you know, bumping and, and hammering, especially in these physical sports, um, you know, is a, is a good way to transmit, you know, this virus. So uh, shutting the whole thing down, shut it down is a thing that was trending on Twitter yesterday, and I think that that's what we're going to see. Sean, why aren't the, uh, the, the teams themselves being more proactive on this, given the severity? And I think probably now we know more about this, and I think have a better understanding of it than we did even maybe 24 hours ago because, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic uh, monitor that's put on this, and we're starting to learn more about this, that it's 10 times worse than the flu and, and 10 times more severe, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's an investment in the players here. I mean, obviously we need to be concerned about the greater good and the, and the safety of the, of the fans and the 20,000 people that might attend a game, for instance. But uh, with, with, with Gobert's thing yesterday, you got to figure this is out there. I mean, it's not a matter of, hey, we're trying to keep this from going into North America. It's already here. We know that. Uh, if, if I'm a team owner right now, I'm, I'm asking all my players to go and get tested. Well, it's everything. It's, it is, I mean, you know, talking a, a week ago, if we were having this conversation of the NBA shuttering its season and the, you know, people chiding the NHL for, you know, dragging its heels for an extra 12 hours, it, it seemed unthinkable. Like, that's how fast that this is moving. That's, that's how fast that attitudes have to change. It's, it's not just the athletes. It's, it's everybody. It's a community thing. It's your neighbor. It's, it's everything. So, you know, by doing this one little thing, and I, I understand that it's not a little thing for many people that, you know, there are folks, and, and Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban has been one of the first to speak publicly to this, but you know, there are hourly wage employees who get paid because there are games being staged. There are game operations people, like people who run the KISS cam, get paid because games are being played. And when games aren't played, they are going to suffer financially significantly unless actions are taken. So you take a look at a multi-billion dollar corporation like Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Yeah, I mean, protecting their athletes and protecting the fans. But, you know, there are other real concerns here, too, that, you know, are you going to take, I believe MLSE has something in the neighborhood of twelve to 1,600 uh, hourly and otherwise salaried employees. Are they going to be taken care of if there are no games? So um, there's a lot at play here, but the core message is sort of community safety. Mark Cuban says uh, he's going to look after those folks. I'm not so sure how the other teams are going to respond to something like that. Uh, but that's an interesting uh, observation, an interesting commitment by Cuban, too, because we don't know how long this is going to go. No, and I mean, he's he subsequently been quoted as saying that he doesn't believe that this means that the NBA season is going to be canceled, merely postponed, meaning that, you know, maybe the NBA Finals is being played in late August instead of mid-June. Which people can live with. I mean, that's not going to be too bad, except it is going to cause, if the NHL, and I, I, I agree with you, I think probably by the end of the day today, if not by lunchtime today, the NHL is going to say, okay, we're, we're following suit, we're going to do the same thing. Uh, but that's going to have an impact, obviously, on, on businesses. And, and, and you know, the, the obviously a lot of these basketball teams and hockey teams share arena facilities in, in some of the major cities, uh, like Toronto, for instance. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on, on what's going to be happening vis-a-vis scheduling. But those are considering public health 
health is the number one priority. Those are small details that can be worked out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're looking at a virus that, I mean, the numbers, again, changing minute by minute. I'm sure there's been news that's broken since you and I have begun this conversation. But, I mean, if you're, if you're over the age of 65, if you, like me, have asthma or underlying conditions, that these are all things that impact you directly. And, and, and if you're not in those demographics, you don't have asthma, you're not elderly, um, you can be a vector from which this virus spreads. So um, by doing something relatively small, and I'm speaking, you know, not somebody who's an hourly employee who's, you know, being paid and has a direct financial stake in this, but as a spectator, um, it's, it's one of the, the least things that you can do, just giving up going to a sporting event or going to see that concert or doing whatever um, for the greater good, which isn't something that we have to speak about in hard and fast and concrete terms that often. It's mostly a theoretical concept, but it's, it's not now. This, this matters now. And, and it's in, well, I want to see the ramifications of this, and I want to see how other sports teams are going to follow suit on this as well. Uh, as you mentioned, the Blue Jays, they're down, obviously, at spring training right now. But, the, you know, the regular season gets underway in about 10 or 12 days. Uh, but I'm even concerned about the games themselves and the, the exhibition games. I mean, uh, you know, our Junior A Bulldogs here have gone and followed the same process that a lot of other teams did, where, okay, nobody allowed in the dressing room, only players and, and essential staff. But uh, you, you wonder about all the sports leagues, junior, professional, whatever the case is going to be, uh, if they understand the severity of this, if they're not going to follow suit. I mean, we could f- look potentially at a massive shutdown here in North America in the next week or so. I would be shocked if that doesn't happen. I mean, you mentioned the Bulldogs. I mean, I just, you know, inadvertently pumping the tires of a book I just wrote here, but yep. I spent the better part of three years around the Peterborough Peets, you know, the rivals, I guess, to the Bulldogs. And you take a look in that arena up in Peterborough, it holds about 3,500 people. The average season ticket holder in Peterborough is of retirement age. That That is a demographic that is most at risk because of this virus. So um, do you, maybe is the Pete's, just as one example, and I know that they don't stand alone as a junior team necessarily in terms of you know who goes to their games, but do you continue as the OHL to stage games knowing that a significant part of your constituency is in the demographic that's most at risk for this virus, of the serious complications of this virus, that I I, I would expect that, you know, by the end of this week, which is only tomorrow, that we're going to see a comprehensive shutdown of every major game across uh, this continent. I mean, just as an aside, I'm a volunteer board member of a ball hockey league here in East Toronto, and it's got about 1,600 players from the ages of three up until very, very old, like me. Um, And we have a board meeting tonight, and at that board meeting, I strongly suspect we're going to announce the postponement of the start of the season, which is going to be next month. So, I mean, that's sort of the discussions that are happening all over the place that you know things that we have taken for granted for generations you know arguably since 1918 uh, when the spanish flu swept across the world um, we're having those conversations now and we have to well and one of the takeaways from the announcement yesterday of course uh, especially with uh, with rudy gobert from utah uh, it, it kind of blows that myth out of the water that, look, at it, it, it's, this is old people that are going to be at risk here. I mean, uh, this guy's an athlete, and, and an elite athlete at that, and you know, obviously in very good shape, uh, and he still con- contracted the virus. I mean, and, and not, you, know, you don't know how severe it's going to be, but the fact that he's got it means he's a carrier. How many other guys on the team are going to be in similar situations? How many guys on the Raptors? I know that they're, they've already decided, of course, that, uh, that they're uh, going to be going, going into self-isolation because they played these guys just the other day. But uh, you don't know how widespread this is. And it does mean that just about everybody here uh, could be a potential victim or a potential carrier for this. 
Well, and that's the thing, too. And, and you do hope that Rudy Gobert recovers swiftly. Um, again, because this is a relatively new thing, the, the facts are, are not well established. But, you know, folks in that demographic, which is to say a healthy young male, typically, you know, have an 80% um, chance to have, you know, minimal to, to light symptoms. It, it can be something like a bad cold. But the challenge is, is that, you know, again, some of the recent numbers out there suggest that, you know, 20% of us, will have something much worse than that, and that uh, another percentage of that will require hospitalization, and then another percentage of that will require intensive care in that hospital, and then, unfortunately, uh, another percentage of that will not survive this because of the complications, because it is an acute respiratory illness that if you have underlying uh, factors, you know, such as asthma, or it's been reported of high blood pressure, or, or just about anything, um, this can be very bad. So, you know, maybe Rudy Gobert isn't going to be um, on the brunt of, you know, that 20%, but, but maybe he's gone to see a grandparent or maybe he's gone and shaken hands with an elderly fan or maybe he's hugged, you know, a relative who has asthma. But that's where the risk is. It's that transmission, the community transmission. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, good luck with the ball hockey meeting tonight. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I'm it's, sure we'll have a press release in the morning. I'm hoping for it. Okay. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, and all the best. Sean Fitzgerald, of course, managing editor for The Athletic, and, of course, one of the feature writers for uh, The Athletic as well. It's widespread. It's happening everywhere. And uh, as we said, we anticipate that probably, uh, given the fact that we already uh, got a media release from the NHL that uh, basically is telling all NHL teams no morning skates today, no team meetings, no practicing today, indicates that they're ready to, uh, to wind things down and probably join uh, the NBA in the suspension of uh, the season for the next little while. Uh, not the cancellation as of yet, because we really don't know how long this is going to last uh, and how severe this is going to get over the next little while. It's a preemptive measure, and I congratulate all the sports leagues that are jumping on board and doing this uh, to try to, to to curb the spread of this until we can kind of get a handle on what's going on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may remember a little while ago we told you that the Ontario government had decided on a pilot project to increase the speed limit on a, a couple of sections of the uh, the 400 series highways. Um, and one of them actually was right here in this area. Ham- it was the QEW between Hamilton and St. Catharines uh, and a couple of other places, one down by London, Highway 402. And uh, as much as they you know they did this, and they also at the same time did some marketing and, and, and some surveying and said, well, what do you think of this, drivers of Ontario? Do you like the idea of having higher speed limits? And uh, the results are out. The Ontario government has released the results on that just uh, earlier this week. And uh, it's, uh, well, maybe not surprising to an awful lot of people. Uh, The government says that 80% of the more than 8,300 people that responded to the survey indicated that they support this pilot project, and another 82% are in favor of higher speed limits on more sections of the 400 series highways. And, of course, it would stand to reason that about 80% also think that uh, the speed limits that we use here in Ontario are too slow, and they should be increased. What say you? Well, it's an interesting debate, and it's not new. This has been going on for quite some time, I think probably since the first time we built a road here in the, in the province of Ontario. Uh, and there are pros and cons to this. Joining us to talk about this is Angelo DeChico, of course, the general manager of Young Drivers of Canada. Uh, Angelo, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Welcome to you and your listeners, Bill. What is our fascination with speed when we get behind the wheel? I'm, well, why are you in a car in the first place? You, you want to go somewhere, and you want to go there kind of now, not later. And so 
Many people believe that, you know, higher speed limits will facilitate them getting from point A to point B quicker. And, and in actuality, that's true. As long as there is a flow of traffic and you're actually able to attain and, and maintain that speed. Which happens, uh, and then there are those that, well, to some extent, abuse the system. And I, you know, I've talked about this yeah. in the past. I mean, I've got a seven-minute drive into work just down the 403 highway here, and uh, and I do the limit. I mean, I'm not, you know, one of these guys that just can barely see over the, you know, the, the dashboard. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing 100 clicks as I'm going down here, yeah. and i got guys passing me like I'm standing still. And this is, a, this is at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I guess they figure the highway's clear. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, well, I, I get that. How does that make you feel that you're being passed? And so the thing is, you everyone wants in on it in the sense that maybe this is like, you know, a St. Patty's Day or a Christmas gift, that we're actually getting something from the government, a couple more kilometers per hour. But the reality is that as long as there is a surety of consequences, if the speed limit is 100, it's 100. If it's 110, it's 110. And as long as people believe that if they're doing 115 or 120, they're going to get a ticket or there will be repercussions, a higher speed limit isn't necessarily more dangerous. It's really the differentiation between people, one person going 90 and one going 110. That's the problem. Which happens, and and I I get that, and looking more than once, <laughs> Angelo. I mean, I've I've looked down at the speedometer and said, "Oh, gee, I didn't know I was going that fast." Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe I'm doing one ten as opposed to one hundred. I mean, and uh, drove to Oakville yesterday from Hamilton, and I tell you, if you're not doing one hundred and ten on the Queen Elizabeth way, uh, you, know, uh, exactly. you know, you're impeding you're traffic. Man enough to admit it. Oh yeah, absolutely. It is all the other vehicles around you are voting with their right foot what the speed limit will be today at this stretch of the road. And it's important that you go with the flow. I'm not saying it's a great idea to be speeding. That's dumb. But what it is, it's important that when you're in the flow of traffic, you preserve space and visibility. Those are the two concepts that will keep you collision-free and not having a dumb crash that's going to make 100,000 people late for work today. Are we smart enough, though, and, and you know, to be able to make that decision as to where we can do this and where we can't? And now it comes down to being a good neighbor and cooperative driving. So if you're a me, 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 I'm really important, more important than you, I'm going to be late for work, and and you're a taker, then you know what? Those people have to be identified and pulled off the road, and those people need a ticket. But in a cooperative flow of traffic, with you keeping enough space between you and the vehicle in front, trying to be staggered so that there's no vehicles on the other side, because there are going to be problems. Someone's going to make a mistake. Someone's going to sneeze. Someone's going to spill coffee on their lap. But there has to be room within which to maneuver should someone make an error. And one day, the guy in front of you is going to cut in front of you at the last moment because he wasn't paying attention and needs into your lane. And you've kept space for them because tomorrow you're going to be the doofus picking your ear and missing that same and needing to cut in front of someone. And then you do the Canadian thing. You shrug your shoulders, say, sorry, I'm a dummy. And life goes on. <laughs> I find, and I don't know if you, when you talk to your students about this, uh, the people that drive a lot are usually the better drivers, and they seem to be able to make that determination. I, I used yeah. to have to commute, of course, from here to Toronto every day, and, and that can get yeah. a little tedious. 
and, but Monday to Friday, um, everybody's doing about 110, 115 on that highway. And it, you're right, it's the flow of traffic, and nobody it's bothers anybody. Uh, Saturdays, uh, you know, we that's the old cliche about the weekend drivers. They're not as used to it, I guess, a lot of the time. No. And, and that's where you see an awful lot of the problems, because they don't get that. Uh, and, and again, you're right, it depends on the stretch of highway that, uh, that goes on. But there's almost an unwritten code among drivers that use those roads all the time, isn't there? Yeah, and, and that's what I meant about conventions also. So you have to be careful when you're entering into an area of town with some weird or older intersections, staggered intersections, that the people who go to work at a quarter to seven every morning decide that one extra person's going to go through on the amber light. Is that legal? No, you shouldn't be. But if you're not aware of your surroundings and you're not being observant, you're going to get caught up in politics that you don't understand. You're in a foreign country, so when you're in Rome, you need to do as the Romans. Meaning that if you're in the left lane and everyone's doing 110, and especially if that's the speed limit now, and you only feel comfortable going 90, and move over to the middle lane or move over to the right. Yeah. Everyone will get along. If you're monitoring your mirrors and choosing the lane with the best flow of traffic and best visibility for you. Now, if you find yourself in a pod of people going 110, you only want to go 100, you might have to do 110 until you can change lanes to the right, let that school of fish go by, and find your school of fish. Yeah, we've I've talked about this before with other folks like yourself, and they say, look, if you get into a situation like that where you're uncomfortable, pull off the road, get a coffee or something yeah. like that, and, and let yeah. that group go away, and, and then you know pick it up somewhere down the road. But it, you've got to know the roads, and this is one of the things yeah. that, I, that I wanted to get your read on, Angelo. Uh, because one of the reasons when I talk to road engineers and, and you know, my eyes kind of glaze over and they start throwing statistics at me about how this is, you know, why they build this, but roads are designed for certain speeds. I mean, you know, if they want people to go 110 or hundred clicks, there's a different kind of design that if they build for a road sure. where the people are only going to go 80. And I don't know if drivers understand that a lot. No. And again, we don't always have an appreciation of how much thought time and money goes into, uh, infrastructure. And as the roadways are getting more and more voluminous, it's getting a lot tighter out there, we need to start finding ways of keeping keeping traffic flowing at the correct speed. So on sections of the 400 series, we're raising the speed limit from 100 to 110. But in the city, some places are going from 50 to 40, now 40 to 30. And the reason is the road engineers and society is trying to communicate that there's stuff happening here is wrong. We're crunching too many pedestrians. So we have to reduce the speed and changing just the sign isn't enough. So now what we're using is traffic calming. We're putting bumps on the road. We're making curvy roads. So it would be, in my opinion, smarter to adjust the nut behind the wheel, which is me, the driver, <laughs> rather than the expensive thing of trying to you know, fix infrastructure. Education is really where it's at, in my opinion. Angela, when you're instructing, especially new drivers, uh, and, and let's face it, from a demographic standpoint, probably most of them are younger people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you get them to, to obviously, they, they want to you know do everything the way you're suggesting. You know, the hands are 10 and 2, and they're looking mm-hmm. into the mirrors, and they're doing all the stuff, because you, you know, Young Drivers is, is a great organization. You really do a great job of educating uh, young drivers about what they need to do. 
But it seems that as soon as they get their license, all of a sudden, uh, you know, they're they're Paul Walker and, and Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. It's Fast and Furious, and they, you know, and it just I don't know if it's in the DNA or what. And it's it's yeah. not by the way gender specific because I see you know no, men and women doing this. No, not at all. And the, so that's why I go back to what I try to stress is a community of drivers. And social media, media, you know, the awful thing that it can be, is also a good thing in the sense that they understand there's a community around them. And you don't want to be the sore person who's making things awful. And so what I try to get across is you can aid people by keeping space for them because they're going to screw up. But tomorrow you will too. And novice and new drivers are rather conscientious. They don't want to be creating evils of bigger carbon footprint, uh, having a crash. So the reality is um, a lot of 16 to 25-year-olds are more conscientious and more afraid and anxious about driving than when we were kids. It is changing. Well, it, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy on the highways these days, uh, simply because, like you say, there are faster cars, and and uh, and we're inundated with that stuff. I mean, obviously, I was using the Fast and Furious analogy there, uh, but even the car commercials we see. I mean, you know, the, the, you never see these cars usually driving down, you know, a no. side street in a residential area. It's always some <laughs> some coastal road in Southern California. <laughs> Uh, and and these and that's are the image, yeah. and they're these guys are professional drivers. I mean, you know, that are doing this. I mean, uh, you know, that they should used to put that warning in there. Don't try this at home. But uh, sadly, we got a lot of people to do anyway. So uh, your so your drive in and out. If you're at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, yeah, you could shoot a commercial. But the reality is, most people who are listening to your program now are in stop and go traffic or forty, fifty kilometers an hour from one set of lights to another. That is the reality of transportation in in our society today. And public transportation, a brilliant thing, but the reality is buses don't always go where you need to go at what time. So it's in our best interest to get across to this community of drivers that you need to keep traffic flowing for you and the vehicle behind and in front. And if we get to go 110, Theoretically, if everyone's moving 110, we're actually going to get there faster. But one crash or one person who's very poor at merging or is in the wrong lane at the wrong speed, including someone who's trying to go 120, 130 and pushing people in front of them, that's actually just negating all the positives that everyone going at 110 with enough space, right? It's just... You have one bad apple, and it can ruin the day for a lot of people. So uh, do you think we're going to move in this direction? The province obviously did this pilot project with the intention of getting this kind of result, and uh, I'm not surprised by the 80% approval rating on this either. But we've got to be strategic about this, though, don't we, Angelo? I mean, this this can't be every highway. There are some that that we're simply going to have to say, you know, these are secondary highways. Uh, Now, does this also mean that if we're going to go from 100 to 110, uh, does that mean on those secondary roads we're going to go from 80 up to 90? Yeah, that one's a tough one. I don't think so personally. Hey, I didn't engineer the roadway. The beautiful thing about the 400 series, it's controlled access. So 
it's only certain places people can get on and to get off. So what you're doing is limiting the merging and people who aren't really good at merging at the Christmas cocktail party, they're not really good at merging onto the 401 or 400. They're either going too slow or too fast and being assertive or not assertive enough. So on this, on these 400 series of highways, everyone's moving in the same direction. And between you and oncoming traffic isn't a yellow line. It's a physical medium. It's, you know, a piece of concrete or a ditch. And so you can increase the speed and help hopefully move more cars, a higher throughput with just increasing the speed limit with very little cost. And they were engineered for much higher speeds than people are going now. Yeah, we've seen that, uh, that Highway 400 between uh, Woodstock and, and London. If you're not doing 120, 125 there, uh, you're not, and that's in the slow lane. I mean, you know, but, yeah. it's, all, but it's all straight. I mean, there's very little yeah. in the way of curves. You, you can almost, when you're on high ground there at Woodstock, you can almost look down the highway almost all the way to London. It, it's that clear. So people get that sense of confidence. That, yeah, we're going to be okay as long as everybody plays by the rules. Is everyone, and what you're saying is correct. So you're looking far enough ahead. You're what young drivers would call it, your melt, minimum yeah. lead time, yeah. 20 to 30 seconds, so that you have plenty of time to respond to should something untowards occur. But you can't fall asleep at the wheel either because the faster you go, the harder you crash and the worse the consequences. So there are costs associated with increasing speed, but there are some beauties that you actually want to get there, you get there a little quicker, you have more... Um, range of motion uh, 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 and you have a, a greater ability to make choices between one lane and the other it's awful when all three lanes are going the same speed that's kind of dumb you should have a slow medium fast that kind of thing so people can choose and and move from one lane to the other as, as their needs were required so if you're in the middle of a pack of cars all going the exact same speed Pick a lane, move over to the right. Let the faster cars go by. Everyone will be much happier when they get get to work. Angelo DeChico from Young Drivers of Canada. Always a pleasure, Angelo. Thanks so much for this today. Have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine while we got it. You betcha. We're going to do what we can. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.